On the eve of World War II, there were between 150 and 210,000 Jewish people living in the independent Baltic state of Lithuania. By the end of the war, or more specifically, the end of the Holocaust, up to 95% of these men, women and children had been systematically murdered. Meaning, per capita, the Jewish community of Lithuania suffered heavier losses than almost any other country. In his new book, The Vow, The Love Story and the Holocaust, author Michael Ruskin tells the tale of two of these survivors, David and Dora Ruskin, his parents. I recently had the opportunity to talk to Michael about his parents' story and his heart-wrenching yet inspirational book. For most of Michael's life, he knew very little about the details of his parents' experience during the Holocaust. And it was only after his father passed away that the full extent of their harrowing story came to light. I'm the only native born in my family tree. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and my, all my relatives and my family were born in Europe outside of my brother who was born in Munich, Germany in 1946. My parents had retired to Miami and in 93, my father took ill and he passed away. So my brother and I flew down to Florida to the funeral and then make arrangements what we were going to do with their condominium. And we both decided that we were going to sell the condo. And then one night, late September, I drove over to their condo and I started arranging the clothes and taking things out of the uh, condominium. When I came upon a document in my father's night table, it was a document that was written by lawyers and doctors who were writing testimony to the German courts in Munich, Germany in 1964. For reparations, my parents were petitioning the courts for over the loss of their daughter and the loss of their families, both on my mother and father's side. In fact, I'm personally the last surviving member of my family. When I found these documents that night, I was reading through things I never knew about. Their physical condition, their emotional condition, situations that happened to them in the Kovna ghetto, which is countless Lithuania at the time was the capital, and their experiences as they got out of the concentration camps. My father was in Dachau for eight months, and my mother was sent to Stutthof, which is a satellite camp in northern Poland. They ended up away from each other for close to eight months. So as I was reading through these documents, I was just shocked to see what happened. I knew then that I had to take those documents with me. Those documents right now, Dan, is now at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Oh, wow. I donated those documents to the Holocaust Museum, and they were nice enough to provide me with a number of photos in my book that you normally won't see. And it's very compelling photos. I took the documents. I spoke to my brother about what I found, but he seemed to just kind of slough it off. He's kind of a stoic guy. Then he passed away in 2008. And when he passed away, I realized that sometime down the road, I had to write a book about my parents. Otherwise, it would just gone into history and no one would have known what happened. Your parents had never really discussed in detail much their experience with you then? No, there were just small conversations 
During their life, we would be watching TV, watching World at War, various documentaries on television. And mm-hmm. once in a while, my father or mother would come up with experiences that they had gone through. But unfortunately, I was too young to understand that what I was watching on the TV were different from the fact that here my parents sitting to my right on the sofa were actually in those, they weren't actually in there, but they were part of all that would happen. They didn't really go into it much. My mother did tell me one time she had a daughter. I didn't really press her on the questions because I didn't want to open up those wounds. Right. My father was a quiet guy, Dan. He didn't really talk very much. He kept everything inside. But most of the information I got was from my mom and it wasn't much. And also from my cousin in Tel Aviv. And then information I got from the Holocaust Museum and Yad Vashem, the uh, museum in Tel Aviv. Going back then to the beginning of their story, from what you've ascertained, what was their experience like as kids growing up in Lithuania? They came from two different backgrounds, Dan. My mother came from a rather strict home. My grandfather was a rabbi. They were pretty well-to-do. They had a pretty large farm they lived on outside of Kaunas in a town called Majek, Lithuania. It's in the northern part of the state. My mother was one of nine children. There were six girls and three boys. My grandfather was very well known among the Jewish community. He ran a synagogue, a very small synagogue in Majek. And he was very well liked, a person who would invite people into their houses to share the holidays. Then my father came from a very poor family in the town of Kadan, which is closer to, to Kovna. And he came from a family that were pretty low middle class. My grandfather was a store owner. He owned a haberdashery where he ended up selling gloves, scarves, belts, hats to the local population. They lived on the second floor. The store was downstairs and the and the store was run by my grandfather, my grandmother, my dad, and my aunt. My dad was more into the electronics thing, so he didn't really spend much time in the store from what I was told. He became an electrician. My mom ended up going to college in 1937, and she ended up going to a teacher school in Kaunas. And my father ended up coming to Kaunas a year later, working in construction on various projects in Kaunas that was going through a pretty strong economic boom, and there was a lot of work there. They actually met where my mom and my mom's sister took an apartment not far from downtown. And then my dad moved into this upper floor of the apartment and they met actually through my aunt. Obviously, my father courted my mom and they went through a relationship together. I go into it in my book. My grandfather was not very pleased that my mom was expecting to marry a man who came from a background that was not close to a rabbi's background. So it was not a situation where my grandparents were very happy about my mother marrying my father. In 1939, they did get married. My grandfather conducted the ceremony and they were married in Kaunas. And then my sister, Rose Miriam, was born a year later in 1940. The Germans actually arrived in July of 41, but 
remember, and maybe people don't know this, but the Russians actually annexed Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. That was based on a non-aggression pact between Hitler and Stalin. The Russians were not very accommodating to the Jewish people back then. They were actually communists, so they took over a lot of the businesses and various office space and factories. They pointed to a lot of people who were enemies of the state, a lot of Lithuanians as well as Jews, and they were actually either exterminated or sent to Russia or to Siberia. What was going on with anti-Semitism goes back to way before the Germans arrived. I mean, they had a lot, many programs, as they were called, in Russia. Grandfather comes from a long line of rabbinic scholars, so this doesn't end with my grandfather or my uncles, but he goes back to the time when they had ancestors in Russia and they were part of the programs and the persecution that was going on in Russia. A lot of deaths and a lot of pain that the Jews felt in Russia even before the Germans arrived. But my parents were very fortunate they didn't have to face that. And so when the Nazis did invade Lithuania, what do you know about that period? The Germans, as you know, they were supposed to stop somewhere mid-parallel in Poland. The secret agreement that Stalin made with Hitler, what we call the sphere of influence. And of course, what happened was the Germans didn't stop at the parallel they agreed upon in 1939. And so the Russians then had to protect the annexed countries, which they took over in 1940. And in 1941 is when the Germans arrived in the Baltic countries. And of course, the Russians didn't have a chance. My parents were actually in an apartment and they survived the initial invasion by going to the basement of the apartment with a number of the tenants that lived in the building. And there they stayed while the bombardment was going on in Kaunas. And again, this is one of the largest cities in Lithuania at the time. It was the capital city. That's when it got very hard for everyone there. They actually had edicts against movement. They had to walk in the gutters. They had to put a Star of David on. They had to give up all their communication equipment. They couldn't have any kind of freedom at all. Many books have been written about the Holocaust Not many has focused on the ghettos that went on throughout Europe. And a lot of people don't understand the number of deaths that occurred even before the ghettos came about because of the persecution that was going on by the locals. In my parents' case, the mobs that developed when the Russians were pushed back into the Soviet Union there were a lot of deaths that occurred at the hands of the locals. A lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of accusation that the Jews were collaborating with the Russians. And that is one of the reasons why so many Lithuanians were taken to Siberia. And so for the Lithuanian locals, it was payback time for what they believed was collaboration between the Russians and the Jews, which was never founded. So it was a very, very tough time. And so even before the Germans arrived in Lithuania, the mobs were killing thousands and thousands of Jews. In fact, my grandparents on my mother's side were executed in their homes by the locals. My mother told me one story when the Germans arrived, they would take some of the locals and ask them where the Jewish 
houses were in their town, the locals would point to the houses and then the Germans would say, go get your guns, get your knives, get your hammers, go in there and do whatever you have to do. And many were killed at the hands of those mobs. I'm not saying all the Lithuanians, but there were mobs that felt it was payback. And so many, many Jews were killed by the locals. Presumably, before the war had come, was this a situation as we saw in, say, Yugoslavia, where you'd had people generally living together peacefully, and then suddenly this conflict comes up, and all of a sudden people go from being neighbours and cordial to killing their neighbours. While they were cordial to each other, there was also a certain undercurrent of anti-Semitism even before the Germans arrived. The fact is, Dan, a lot of the, the Jewish people had prominent positions in places of influence. You know, they were store owners, they were heads of banks, they were head of factories. So a lot of these locals actually worked for the Jewish community. And so having a job, they had to be nice. But once the Germans arrived, then their true colors came out. And that's when it was time for them to take over and to do what they felt they wanted to do for a long time. But they were not in a position to do that before the Germans or the Russians came in. There was a cordial relationship between the Jewish population and the locals, but there was still anti-Semitism that actually goes back centuries, both in Russia and in Lithuania. Your parents, eventually, they ended up in the Kovno ghetto. Correct. Um, now, what happened was when the Germans, when the Germans invaded and took over Kovno, and going back to the mobs, they were killing so many Jews that the Germans brought together the council, the people that were prominent people in the town, and they told them that they were going to create safe zones, which was nothing further than the truth than saying we're going to a ghetto as a safe zone. Basically, it was a place where they were systematically killing Jews, but instead of running all over town, they would put them in one place. So in Kovna, they took around 35,000 Jews out of the capital city, and they had them move into a very poor part of town where they bob-wired the town. And they ended up having the Jewish population move into apartment buildings where it was only housing maybe one family. They actually had to bring in like two, three families at a time and moving into the ghetto while the people in the ghetto had to move out. So what you're noticing in my book I talk about is an exodus from all parts of Kovna where they were given a certain date that they had to move out of that part of Lithuania and move into the ghetto where they were then bob-wired in. They couldn't move out. Food was doled out by the Germans. That took place all over Europe. And presumably, when they had to make that move, they weren't able to take with them all of their personal possessions. In my book, I talk about it, where they had Lithuanians who had a wagon, and they filled the wagon with just their most personal belongings, And they had to move them about four miles from their apartment into the ghetto. And they left a lot inside the apartment they couldn't take. And once they got to the apartment in the ghetto, they realized that were two other families that were living there. So I think it was like a total of nine or 10 people living in a two-bedroom apartment. 
It was very mm-hmm. overcrowded. There was a lot of sickness, typhus. There was a lot of disease going on. It was a horrible place to be. And as I said, a lot of the authors that have written books on the Holocaust don't go into a lot of detail about the ghetto, even before they got into the concentration camps, if they were so fortunate to live through that. A lot of people died inside the ghetto as well. Fortunately, my parents made it. Do you know how long they lived in this ghetto? Almost four years. Oh, wow. What was unique about the Kovna ghetto is they had two different operations that the Nazis would use. And one was the selection process. They would actually examine you by you standing in line for hours, waiting to walk up to an SS officer, where they would examine you to determine whether or not you were going to live or die. To the right, you would live and go on work details. If you were sickly or old, you would go to the left and you would be taken to the extermination camp outside of the Kovna ghetto and exterminated. And in the book, I talk about what happened actually being standing in line for hours at a time and knowing that as the line was going through, that you were getting closer and closer to the judge, jury and executioner. The other part was called the raids. And this was Probably the hardest chapter I wrote, Dan, was when I spoke about my sister being taken by the SS in March of 1944. Now, let me back up a moment and tell you that what happened with the raids is that the Germans would have unannounced raids in the apartment buildings. And once they got in, they would take clothes and jewelry and appliances, money, Anything they felt of value, they would take. And if you objected, they either would take you away or beat you in their apartments. And this was going on constantly. They would have these raids at these houses. My father had dug what we call a spider hole in the floor of their apartment. And being an electrician, he was good at all of this. He was very good with tools. And he built a small hideout underneath the floor, putting uh, rations and water down into the hole in case these raids were going on, and so they would hide down in the hole, so they weren't always identified. And it was many times that they went down there as the Germans were invading these apartments. And so on March 27th of 1944, my sister Rose Miriam and my mom were down in the hole as my father was on a work detail. And in my book, it was chapter six, The Death of Innocence. The Germans came into the apartment. And by the way, what I'm telling you now are all documents that are in the book. Most of what I'm talking about now were the documents I found in my father's night table back in 93. So this is all substantiated in these documents you will find in the book. So when they were down in the hole, the Germans came in, they didn't see anything, they were ready to walk out, and my sister ended up murmuring, and they actually were starting to tap on the floor because they heard the sounds coming from under the floor. They found my mom and my sister, and then it goes into some detail about what happened from there, and it was just a horrible, horrible experience. My sister was literally taken out of my mother's arms, as it says in the documents, and she never saw her again. And only three months later, Dan, only three months later, they were separated on the train platform where my father's being shipped to Dachau by train and my mother's being sent to Stutthof in Poland. This is only three months after my sister was killed. The fact that they had the strength of the human spirit and the love and the faith and the courage to survive, they would not have. It's only through that that they lived. 
that is just horrific. So then the title of your book includes The Vow. Is that in relation to a conversation your parents had after your sister was killed when they were separated at that train station? That is correct. What happened in 1944, they were going to be liquidating the Kovna ghetto. It was 44. The Allies were getting close and they wanted to liquidate the ghettos and move as many Jews as possible to the concentration camps to work for the military machine, clothing and different types of utensils they would make for the Germans. Well, anyway, so when they were being taken out of their apartments and going onto the trains, my mom and dad knew the trains were ready to go. My father's train was going south towards Munich. Mom's train was going north towards northern Poland. And so that's where the vow came in, Dan. Right before they were separated by the Germans, my parents made a vow that if either one were to live after the war, if they were to survive, they were to go back to their hometown, to the square, to see if the other one was still alive. And they made that vow on the train tracks before they were separated and put into separate boxcars and separate trains to go in opposite directions. They did not know where they were going. All they were told by the Germans were you're being deported to other parts so you'd be safer there than staying in the ghetto, which was just a ruse. The girls and the women were taken on one train and the boys and the men were taken on another train with my father going to Dachau, my mother going to Stuttgart. Wow. What do you know of their personal experiences once they were in these concentration camps? I didn't go into a a lot of information, but I do know from my documents and from information I got from the museum, my father, I know for a fact, was an electrician. And one of his jobs was to take the bodies off the electrical fences, those in captivity that were trying to escape or were committing suicide. What he would do was he'd take the bodies and put them on wheelbarrows and then wheel them into the crematorium for them to burn. Jesus. And other than that, uh, he was kept alive primarily for that. But they lived in squalor. They lived in these barracks that normally housed maybe 50 to 100 people. And they had maybe three or 400. The facilities there weren't working. There was typhus fever going around. There was atrocities going on all the time. The living conditions in both Stutthof and Dachau was just beyond one's imagination. In my mother's case, she was brought up to Dachau to actually be uh, working with my aunt because they were together. They were cleaning out the latrines in the Stutthof concentration camp and working on the barracks, making sure it was clean. And they also were digging anti-tank ditches. So the allies couldn't get in. It was a horrible experience. I mean, based, I know I've done a lot of research on the concentration camps. The living conditions in both locations were just unimaginable. It was inhuman. So when that particular nightmare came to an end, what was liberation like? Because they're in two different locations at this point. What was the liberation moment? In my mother's case... It was in 1945, they had what they called death marches, where when the Germans were liquidating the concentration camps, 
they were taking the Jews out of the camps and marching them to other camps to work and to die. That's how much the Germans wanted the Jews to stay alive, only to work for the military machine. So in my mother's case, Dan, there was a death march from the Dudhof concentration camp to the Baltic Sea, which was about 26 miles walking in the cold. Uh, Some had very little clothes, giving very little rations. And they had to walk from the from the uh, Stutthof camp, 26 miles to get onto barges that were afloat maybe 100 yards from the shoreline. And they had to swim from the beach to the barge, who then would take them to a concentration camp in Germany. So what happened was, as my mother and my aunt were marching all that way. It was freezing cold. They were about three miles away from the beach when a platoon of Russian soldiers came out of the woods along the side of the road. And then there was a firefight between the German soldiers who was guarding the marchers and the Soviets. And my mom and my and along with a lot of other were actually in the crossfire. They would actually have to hit the ground in the snow just to dodge the bullets. So this was going on. And through that skirmish that they had, my mom and my aunt lived. Now, I will tell you this just to back up a little bit. They were only three miles from the beach, Dan. And I didn't tell you the real crux of the matter is once the marchers got to the beach, they were told to get into the water and to swim to the barge after walking 26 miles in the freezing cold. And many of them, once and a lot of them could not swim. Now, we're talking about older people. We're talking about younger people. We're talking about people who were experiencing the elements of winter. And once they got into the water, They were actually machine gunned by the Germans on the beach. They never reached the barge. And those who did reach the barge were eventually exterminated when they got to the camps in Germany. And my father was in also a death march. But in his case, there were no, there was really no shooting. The Germans just dropped their rifles once they were surrounded. And my father then went into a hospital to recover. My mother's situation was a lot more traumatic, obviously. My father still had a long way to walk, but he was able to survive without going through that much hardship, although it was not easy. That's unbelievable. How did they come to reconnect? Well, what happened was my father was sent to a hospital. He went for about three to four weeks of recuperation, and then he was released, although the doctors did not want him to go because he kept remembering of the vow that he made to my mom. They were very kind to him as they were leaving. They gave him a special United Nations pass for him to go from one country to the next because he was then on a mission, the name of the chapter is the mission, to find my mom. Now, he mapped out a route from Munich, Germany to Kaunas, and his plan was to either walk or get on a train or find a way of stopping at these displacement camps 
along the route back to Lithuania. And each time he went into these displacement camps, he would want to know, where are the women of the Kovnegeta? Are they here? And he went through three different countries, more than a dozen displacement camps looking for my mother. My mother, on the other hand, ended up coming down with typhus fever. And she was in Poland at the time with my aunt, and she was also trying to get back the countess. Unfortunately, she got very sick. She was put in an infirmary outside of Balistok, Poland. And she was on a cot with my aunt, only hours away from death. My father ended up meeting a man on the street that was in the ghetto with my mom and dad. And the man said, I saw your wife. He pointed to this building where my mom was. And of course, my father was ecstatic because he realized that she was still alive. When she saw my father, she looked at him and she said, David, are we in heaven? She actually thought my father was an angel taking her to heaven and that she wasn't even alive anymore. And of course, my father said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm alive and so are you. It was, very, it was a very emotional wow. reunion. And the rest I'll leave to the book. Michael, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It's a really incredible and moving tale. And I actually just finished reading the book myself. And I would encourage anyone listening to this, you know, if you want to get the full story, Michael's book has in it a lot of photographs from family, but also some rare documents and photographs from both Israel and the U.S. at Holocaust Museums. His website, where you can buy the book, is at www.thevowalovestory.com. You can also find a link in the episode notes for thevowalovestory.com. And it's also on my official website, which is historypodcast.org. To conclude this episode, we're going to hear the voices of some other Jewish people who, like Michael's parents, survived the Holocaust. The following recording the traditional Hatikva was recorded by the BBC and is sung by survivors of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp just five days after their liberation in The children of Israel still liveth. 